Recovery is stupendous. Achievable. Hope. Freedom. 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 Empowering. It's unique to everyone. It's a journey, not a destination. Getting a new lease on life. Finding restoration after you fall down. Recovery is having the freedom to enjoy life. For me, it was finding a way to really love myself. My recovery is possible in part because of my own sense of purpose. Welcome to Montana's Peer Network Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Jim Haney. And I'm Andy Daniel. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Recovery Talks. Today, Andy and I are going to be discussing peer respites. A broad definition is that it's a voluntary, short-term, overnight program that's community-based and it's non-clinical. It's for crisis support. And it it operates generally 24 hours a day. It's a home-like environment. Um, And it it tends to help people stay out of the hospital. Absolutely. You know, I remember, gosh, back in maybe 2012 at Alternatives Conference, I remember going to a workshop. That was the first time I ever heard the term peer respite. I didn't really know what that was. And I... um, uh, there were people like uh, Dan Fisher were there presenting it. I think it was probably put on by the National Empowerment Center. And um, and they had a few other directors, I think Nebraska, New York, they were there. And, uh, and I was kind of fascinated by it. I was like, wow, this is so innovative. This place where a, a person who's having some distress, not, not what we would call a full-blown mental health crisis, right? Because I think most people really aren't, really most people probably don't fit the definition of a mental health crisis when we we take them and we put them in like crisis stabilization centers. I mean, it's really about a person struggling, you know, emotionally. And it's like, wow, this idea of a place where somebody could go and be around other peers who probably have had the same experiences as them. You know, in that warm house-like environment, not so clinical, uh, not so stigmatizing, more accepting, that people could go there in lieu of these stabilization centers or Montana State Hospital or a behavioral health unit. And I remember thinking, wow, that's pretty cool what they were doing. And it seemed so far away from what we were doing in Montana at the time. I've I've heard the the term respite in, in other ways. And I think that's probably why this is um, sort of a more difficult concept that there, you know, people who are caregivers for special Mm -hmm. needs kids or or something like that, that Mm -hmm. term respite is used to sort of say, okay, you need to take a break. So somebody will come in and care for that person while you take a break. Um, So it's, it's aimed at the caretaker, not person who's actually receiving the respite service yeah 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 no i agree i'd heard of that before too yeah and so when we're talking about this peer respite and most of them that that i've seen are homes that are just kind of converted and they have you know three four five six you know beds in them and they're places where people can go there's typically like support groups it's staffed by people, um, what, what I would say, peer supporters, right? Like what we would say, they're peer supporters. They're people with behavioral health diagnosis who are in recovery 
who've had these very similar experiences. And I think pure respites, if you think about pure respites and verse like a sober living or sober homes, that kind of thing, I think pure respites tend to be more on the mental health side than sober living or sober community homes where they're more about substance use. So this is talking about people with in, in a mental health, with a mental health diagnosis, mental health recovery. Um, but they're run by recovery organizations, companies like Montana's Peer Network, right, would open up a peer respite, for example. Or if they're not, then there needs to be a board or an advisory group that would have at least the majority, at least the 51% would be people in recovery, mental health diagnosis. And, and that's important to help differentiate it from these other things, I, I think. Because we have things in Montana like uh, adult foster care, right? Yeah. But, but the person running it doesn't have to be a person in recovery. So uh, a little bit different. And as you're listening to this, there's a great website with lots of information that we're going to be pulling stuff off of. And it's uh, peerrespite.net. So that's P-E-E-R-R-E-S-P-I-T-E dot net, peerrespite.net. It's been up for a number of years, I think about five years, lots of good information. And so <clears throat> if you're listening and you're like, hey, I want to learn more about this, that's where we're going to pull a lot of the information from. So, Well, I think an important distinction between like sober living or those kinds of things and peer respite, not only is it generally more behavioral health or mental health, uh, it's also a short term thing. Whereas I feel like sober living places are more long term. I'm going to be here for weeks or months or, you know, whatever that is. Even years. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's a good, that's, that's a good distinction there. Yeah. This would be short term. Like, you know, I really think about in my experience as a peer supporter, um, you know, working in the community, how many people ended up in the crisis stabilization unit who actually didn't need to be there. Now, they needed support, right? They needed, I'm not saying they didn't need help. They did need some, some help, some support, some compassion. But they actually didn't need that high-end service. And that is a high-end service. It, it's quite expensive to do a, uh, you know, 72 hour stay in a crisis stabilization unit. And so I think that happens a lot because we don't have anything else. Like we don't have an alternative in Montana. I mean, we have Montana state hospital, we have behavioral health units, we have these private uh, crisis stabilization centers and, and then that's it. And so I think, you know, peer respites come about because you need to have an alternative that one is providing a real compassionate recovery environment, but it it also is costing way less to the system and probably, and we're going to talk about data from some of these places, it probably in most cases, it's probably producing better outcomes. And so I think that's what I, I think when I, when I was thinking about, hey, let's do a podcast on peer respites, let's talk about this. Um, that's 
part of what draws me to it. it, it there's there's so many win-wins going on with peer respites. And I don't think we use peers in Montana for that crisis response as much as we could be, right? I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. there are some peer supporters who can go to a hospital or, or mm -hmm. whatever, but I feel like there should be some kind of level, like mm -hmm. someone who's a peer supporter who has a substance use history or a mental health history, but has not had that kind of a crisis maybe is not as helpful as somebody who has, right? So if you can sure. staff these respites with people who have been in that situation, yeah. it just makes things so much easier. Yeah, yeah. I think you're talking about specialty, specialization, right? Yeah. That, that's where I see the future going with certified behavioral peer support specialists in Montana. I mean, I really see the field at some point, not too far down the road, is going to start splitting, you know, the way that we have it right now, there's one certification, regardless of your lived experience, your recovery journey. And, and I see this, I see employers hiring people who don't have a good match to their program. They're hiring people because they like them, or, you know, they like somebody on the staff that likes them or knows them. Like, they're not really matching to fit their environment. So I agree with you. I mean, I think that if you're talking about staff in a peer respite, you're probably talking about somebody who has a primary mental health diagnosis, who's experienced some, some crisis situations, some hospitalization situations, and, and now is, is solid in their recovery. That's who's going to be really good at this, right? Because they know what it's like to uh, go, be forced to go into uh, Montana State Hospital or a behavioral health unit, have your rights taken away, sort of that clinical approach to it, whereas at a respite, they're going to they're gonna thrive. They're going to be really effective because they're going to know that in most cases, we really just need some love and compassion, and, and the results are going to come from, from that, rather than sort of that forcing, we have to take you into custody and right and we're going to strip search you and we're going to right like make you do some things and if you don't want to do these things we're going to take you to the state hospital or boot you out the door or like you know we have a kind of a punitive system when people are really needing help so i agree with you um and no different than somebody who wants to work as a peer supporter maybe they're a veteran and they want to work with other veterans that's a specialty you know, yeah, that, right. Like you, I only want to work with veterans. So I'm going to work at the VA or I'm going to work at a program that serves vet, veterans. So I can use my experience in the military to help support people. So, you know, when you look at some of the data from these respites around, around the country, some of it's pretty impressive, Andy. Yeah. There's some of the research suggests that uh, people who used respites were 70% less likely to use inpatient or emergency services than those who didn't use respite. So it's really keeping a That's, lot of people out of inpatient settings. Yeah, yeah. 70% 70, 70 is pretty high. That's 
that's pretty. That's a pretty high number. I mean, I think uh, you know when you look at the cost, you know, because this is something that uh, you know you have to talk about with any program. I mean, what's the thing cost? You know, so they have some stats here that show uh, one thousand fifty-seven dollars for a respite user compared with uh, three thousand one hundred eighty-seven for non-user. So I'm assuming that means people who went to like to the state hospital or a behavioral health unit. And if, when you go to this site, it, it actually has where the statistics came from. And we're not going to get into breaking all that down. Um, but they're all here where the stats came from in the different studies. I, I think one of the things that often gets overlooked is the, this one here that's talking about things like self-esteem or, um, um, what we'd call symptoms, mental health symptoms, the reduction of that, like social activity, like being engaged with people and how respite guests experience greater improvements in these areas. That's not something that any behavioral health unit is measuring. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're not measuring those kinds of things. You know, they're, they're not at all. I mean, they're basically going to kind of house you there. They're going to try to stabilize you for a few days, and then they're going to go, okay, let's connect you to a few resources, and then, oh, four days is up, and boom, there you go out the door. You know, they're not – these these are really important. Self-esteem, you know, and, and this was the self-rated symptoms, so people acknowledging, hey, my symptoms are declining as I'm, as I'm being here. And then getting connected with people. We know that's a huge issue. Social iso- isolation. If you're somebody, you know, who's not well mentally, emotionally, you probably don't have a large circle of people that you're, you're getting support from. So getting around a respite where you're going to be with other people, where that's encouraged, it's a recovery environment, I think, versus, I mean, I know for myself being hospitalized, I don't know about you, Andy, like that sort of sterile hospital setting not very conducive to to uh recovery right and you know we've talked about this isolation piece uh in other podcasts too about you go into inpatient treatment of some sort and you're cut off from everybody you don't you know people don't come visit you you're not seeing your same therapist all of that and then they dump you out into non-structure And a respite lets you still be a part of your community and you can still see your therapist and your friends and your family and all of that. And so not only are you connecting with other people who have lived experience, you get to continue those relationships in other areas. Exactly. Exactly. And keeping people truly connected. You know, I, I see this a lot. I see, um, as I read things, you know, we, Montana and Montana, you know, we always use it. Oh, you know, let's, um, keep people connected to their communities. Right. So, you know, let's keep people out of the state hospital and, you know, but if you don't have the resources in the community, then, then that's, you're failing. Like, like that doesn't work. <laughs> like you're saying you're better served in your community, except your community's white sulfur springs. Right. Like, you don't have a bunch of resources there. Now, if you're in Missoula, then that's probably true because you have lots of resources. But if you're in some of these really small communities, 
there are not resources there for you. So how are you better served? You're not. And so this is where a respite can come into play is that you could have a respite available where somebody could go and gosh, you know, just as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about, you know, some of these counties where, you know, they'll actually put people in a, in a cell, right. You know, the sheriff will actually keep them in a cell because they don't have anywhere to put the person and it's hundreds of miles to a behavioral health unit or a crisis stabilization. So they're putting them in a cell. Now, how conducive is that to somebody's recovery? I mean, we know it's not. And we know that even law enforcement doesn't like doing that, but there's no other alternative. There's no other option. And so, again, I think this is a place where peer support and peer respites can come into play and could really begin to make a difference. Uh, other states that have implemented this, and, and it's interesting when you look at the numbers, like where they are and how some states have a bunch of them and then some states only have one. I don't know if you picked up on that, Andy, yeah. when you were looking at the numbers. You, know, you have a state like Nebraska, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. They all only have one. Right, but and then, New Hampshire has four, which is where peer right. respites kind of started was New Hampshire. Yeah, exactly. New York, look at New York. I mean, yeah. They have six, right? Georgia, California, you know, they have a lot of them. And so it's interesting to, to look at, you know, across the country. I notice when I look at the map, none of the mountain states have respites <laughs> yet. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. None, none of, they're mostly New England states, East Coast states. Then you have a few there, kind of Midwest, yeah. Plains, and then California. California, yeah. Yeah, but otherwise, nobody in the Rocky Mountain states has a respite. It'd be kind of cool if Montana could be the first one to get a <laughs> to get a respite. Maybe we could set a trend kind of thing, you know. But if you go to this website again, it's peerrespite.net. You click on the directory. There's a map of the U.S. That's what we're looking at, and then you can actually click on the individual states, and you can can start to look at those and. Uh, <clears throat> And then when you do that, it has the map, it has a picture of what the respite looks like and the contact information, you know, so you can email them, you can call them. And then some of the criteria, now not a whole bunch of the criteria, but it's got some of the criteria. Um, and I, I clicked on the one in Georgia, uh, it's in, uh, or sorry, I clicked on Florida, it's in Gainesville, and its mission is to provide sanctuary and support to those who are experiencing or have experienced overwhelming mental, emotional distress, seeks to create a community that supports open dialogue, empowerment, self-determination, recovery, and wellness. Eligibility, 18 years of age or older. Priority will be given to Alachua County residents, then will accept additional guest space permitting. So. I'm guessing the county must pay for part of the respite, right? Right. Since they have priority. Self-identify as being a peer, uh, um, be independent in ADLS, and have a permanent address. Guests can be receiving services through local mental health system, though this is not required. We are the first and currently the only peer respite, Florida, uh, respite program in Florida. The idea for this respite began in 2015. 
we cut the ribbon in February 2017. It looks like a very nice house. Yeah, and they have a great schedule. You can click there on on their website and Mm -hmm. see everything that they're doing every day. So there's Mm. support groups at different times, um, at least one a day. Some things that are just events like lunches or pizza parties or something like that. And then training kind of things, right? Like building skills, Mm. like mindfulness and Mm -hmm. social cues and and things like that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I really think that this is something that we need in Montana. I think this is something that we need to really take a look at and um, we need to try out. We need to think about getting a peer respite and and seeing seeing what happens, you know, and, and let the thing get up and off the ground and and who knows where it might go or what it might develop into. Because I'm guessing that, you know, when you look at some of these states where they have a whole bunch of them, uh, you know, they started with one, right? And then it just started building from there and you have success. And so then you replicate that in another community. I'm kind of flipping through some of them, just clicking on them. And one thing I'm noticing is staff are trained in almost all of them, say certified peer support specialists. And then a lot of them have things like intentional peer support or they'll have RAP or all three but almost all of them say certified peer supporters, except that first one that we took a look look at mm-hmm. in Florida. It didn't say, um, doesn't mean they don't, right? but um, it didn't specifically say that. Yeah. This might be, a, you know, kind of the next thing um, for Montana. And I know certainly here at the Peer Network, we've talked about this for a while. Um, what would this look like having a peer respite where people could come and stay sh- short term and could be this alternative to hospitalizations. And, uh, boy, if we could produce some of these results that some of these programs have, have shown, you probably, uh, have all the funding you could, uh, you could, you could need for it, you know? Yeah. I, I think that, I would have chosen a respite had it been available because I wasn't, when I was hospitalized, I guess I I wasn't really actively suicidal, but Mm -hmm. there was nowhere else to go. Right. Exactly. And, And that's, that's exactly what the issue is, right? Is that we don't have these alternatives. I mean, we take people into, you know, put them in a protective custody, you know, a 72 hour hold, right? But you, if you begin talking to people, I and mean, I know this from doing peer support, you know, long enough. I mean, you start talking to the person, and you begin to realize they're not really in crisis. Right. They're overwhelmed, and there's nowhere else for them to go. And so that's where they end up. And so I think it can be really stigmatizing, and I think that this is a good alternative. Now, one of the things they have on this site that I really like is they have this guidebook for peer respite self-evaluation, this is practical steps and tools, and it, it's been updated a number of times. And uh, I really like this because it's that it's that whole idea of, you know, you kind of evaluating yourself. Like, 
you know, you're monitoring yourself, which, which is, is, you know, mimicking recovery, right? It's like, you know, how am I doing? Like, how's my recovery going? And so I really like that approach. Um, you know, if you're thinking about putting together a plan and that's really what it starts off talking about, you know, is you need to plan and prepare and they've even got a, you know, a do do's and don'ts in here, which is really cool. But I think it's, I think it's laid out pretty neat. I mean, I think, you know, you got to set some goals and this has to be grassroots and, you know, you got to build some partnerships and the planning, 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 planning is so important. And I know, you know, when I do work with folks around uh, their peer, peer programs, recovery programs, I mean, that that's, that's right where I start. It's like, what's your plan? You know, and um, the ones that have good plans are the ones that usually succeed. Right. You know? Yeah. So I really, I really like this. And this could also be a really another area for peer supporters to begin promoting in their communities and think about, um, because there's some challenges, peer supporters working within the system and systems or agencies that don't want to evolve, right, into recovery models. And so I think it's pretty cool. And this guide looks pretty neat. Talks a lot about data how important this is, how to collect data using different programs. It gives good examples there. And then how you're going to analyze it and what it's telling you um, so you can evaluate what you're doing because that's what funders want to know. Like, is the respite working? You know, if you're asking people to fund what you're doing, okay, but then you better be able to come back. You better be able to come back and say, hey, um, this is what, you know, this is what we're finding. <clears throat> I also think as a director, having data, it, it just gives you information on what's actually happening and allows you to make adjustments on the fly as you're, as you're moving along. Right. Yeah. So peer respites, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, in the not too distant future, we can have, uh, at least one peer respite here in Montana as of today, 2019 we don't we don't have any but this is a great website again peerrespite.net highly encourage you to go take a look at it and maybe you the listener are going to be the first one that's going to start a montana peer respite get us on the map yeah all right well i think we're gonna wrap it up for the day i think uh if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to either Andy or myself. Uh, if you're interested in being a, a podcast guest, you just need to email one of us, either Jim at mtpeernetwork.org or Andy, and that's A-N-D-I, at mtpeernetwork.org, and we'll set something up with you. It's a really easy process. Some people get um, nervous about it, but really it's just about having a conversation. Right. Exactly. With a little bit of prep beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, you got to prep it a little bit. That's important. So uh, let us know if you'd like to be a guest and thanks again for tuning in to recovery talks. Have a great week. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works. Recovery is possible. Recovery is possible. (laughs) Recovery works and recovery is possible.
Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible.